So, a little story time. One day I was driving my gold Focus, and not the, uh, the gold that kind of looks good, it's the ugly, bold, in-your-face gold that you just want to kind of throw up when you see it. Um, anyways, I was on my way to work, making the left turn onto a highway, and I, I look to my right, see an opening behind the semi. I'm like, oh, I, I can go. And then I look to my left. There's this car that's making the right-hand turn. They got their signal on. I'm like, yes, right timing. It's really busy, but I think I can make it. And I start to go. But what I didn't realize is behind that car turning was a car that was going full speed, and I just couldn't see them. And I get T-boned. And bam, I just start going into 360 into the ditch. Now, luckily, both of us weren't hurt. Um, I got, like, it was just kind of the slow motion experience where as the car was spinning, I just kind of like saw the car go off and then airbags explode and it scraped my arm and I'm just kind of like going on the roller coaster ride and just thinking to myself, Pat, you dummy, what did you do? Uh, and I get into the ditch, guy comes over and makes sure that, hey, like my spine's not broken or something, and we're all fine, and uh, emergency services come, they clear everything out, and then I get a ride to leave. And right before I leave, one of the officers hands me a ticket. I'm like, oh, really? I just, I, this is not good timing, because at this point in my life, I was a 20-something, I didn't have a whole lot of cash in the bank. And I was already struggling with a couple of things of debt. And here's this ticket for hundreds of dollars. And I'm just like, uh, I, I can't even pay this. Like, how is this going to work out? And so I'm stressing out about it and kind of thinking, There's just, this is just wrong. He shouldn't, I shouldn't be at fault for this. And I start kind of building up in myself like a normal 20-somethings would do and just kind of get angry at, I don't deserve this. And so I go back home and I look up the ticket. It says it's like failure to obey traffic control device. And I'm, I'm like, there was no traffic control device. I, didn't, I was merging into traffic and look into it. And I finally realize, oh, actually, yeah, I, I, there was a stop sign. And I went into traffic and the car didn't have a stop sign and it hit me. Well, that was my fault. And I quickly realized, oh. I'm gonna have to go stand before the judge and say I'm just I'm guilty. Nothing I can do about it. And I just determined that I was gonna go see the judge. Um, so I show up to the, the court and they have like this long line. And I get finally get called up, and the judge starts going over what my offense was, and he starts saying something like, "Yeah, so it's here you didn't have your insurance card present at the time of the incident," and I'm like. Wait, what? That's not, no, I, that, I had my insurance card. And he's like, oh, it starts flipping through the paperwork. Wait, is your name Emilio? And I'm like, uh, nope. <laughs> Patrick, it's Patrick. Okay. So he's like, oh, and he starts scrambling, he calls the clerk over, and they start scrambling through things and trying to figure out what's going on. And, um, and uh, I go sit down, they call me back up, and the judge asks me, hey, do you have your copy of the ticket. So I hand it to him and he starts writing on it. It's kind of silent. And I'm just kind of like, what is going on? This is weird. And he hands back the ticket to me and he says, 
So here's the deal. We lost your paperwork. And I'm like, oh, let me back up a little bit. Before I went to this, I, I was kind of really stressing out, like I said before, and I was just, I'm not going to make this an over-spiritual thing. I did pray to the Lord, and like, Lord, have mercy on me. I can't pay this ticket. Um, and so, but at the same point, I was ready. I knew that I was guilty and had to pay the ticket. I wasn't asking necessarily for his mercy to just make it go away. That wasn't what I was thinking was going to happen. It was more, Lord, help me get through this. Have mercy in that way. And then all of a sudden, this, this scene happens where, oh, the paperwork's lost. I'm like, what is, this is amazing. Okay. And he's like, yeah, on your ticket, I wrote on there that if we ever find your file, we can't come back and make you pay the ticket. Like, this is your, in essence, get out of jail free card. I'm like, sweet. That's awesome. And, and what it helped me understand a little bit better is how Christ forgives my debt, my greater debt. It was just that understanding of, oh, this is what, what it's like to have your debt forgiven. Um, and it was just one of those amazing things that I can just look back to and just be reminded of. Yeah, even in small things, God's faithful. I'm not saying that he's going to, if you pray to the Lord after you got a ticket, that he's going to uh, make it go away. That's not at all what's going to happen. <laughs> that was totally a, some kind of fluke in the system, as Dallas can probably attest to. <laughs> um, but one of the things that we're going to talk about today is in Deuteronomy 15. And we're going to see how Yahweh brings restorative justice. And he brings it to his people, and um, he calls his people to live out that restorative justice. And so Yahweh gave the Israelites commands to bring this justice uh, in what is called the sabbatical year. So no, this is not a year-long uh, vacation from work. It's not what this is about, so don't get any funny ideas. Uh, it actually deals with the relationship between the poor and the rich and Yahweh. And I'm just going to give you a quick little summary. We, we had them read uh, what our text was, but I'm just going to give a quick summary of what this entailed. So the sabbatical year was every seventh year. Uh, and during this year, any debt that was between Israelites would be released. And also the land was to be released, uh, which meant not worked on. And we also see that in Exodus, is where we get that from. Uh, and so any, also anyone who was a slave uh, would be released from that servant, uh, place, of servant uh, place of being a servant. <laughs> uh, but had the opportunity to stay with their master if they so chose. Uh, and also the firstborn of the flocks or herds were to be dedicated to the Lord. Uh, so at this quick glance, you might be able to start seeing the implications of how this could bring restorative justice in the midst of the Israelites. But before we look at those commands in detail, I want to point out the fact that Israel did not keep those commands. And it led to a very dark point in their history as a people of God, which is going to bring me to my first point. 
Let me throw that up on the slide there. Minimizing the importance of righteousness and justice is detrimental. Minimizing the importance of righteousness and justice is detrimental. So Yahweh gives command to keep the sabbatical year, which brings about righteousness and justice among the people of Israel. And we're going to discuss more in detail uh, that sabbatical year, but I want to address how important it was to God that the people of Israel keep this. And the result of the people rebelling against God's command is what we're going to really talk about right now. So we're going to read Leviticus 26. And just a quick little background. We're going to see how this, how God deals with disobedience uh, to the covenant between him and his people. And remember that this disobedience meant that the people were acting unjustly and selfishly. So let's read Leviticus 26 here, starting in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Now, this already doesn't sound pleasant. (laughs) Uh, And and it's going to continue to regress to a worse uh, place as the people continue to rebel and break covenant with God. Uh, Let's jump down to verse 27. It says, But in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts, into the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. And they shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity." And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. So, does this sound brutal? 
Yes, it does. How many of you find these verses hard to hear? Yeah, it's pretty graphic. And I want you to know that, yeah, this is uncomfortable. Uh, And it's meant to be stern. Because it's painting a picture of what sin, what the sons of disobedience deserve. And stating that God, what God will do to a people who break his covenant in pursuit of injustice. And Yahweh is claiming that he will bring justice by judgment on an unjust people. So looking at what Leviticus describes, we see this curse play out in the form of destruction and exile. Now, a question for you. Did God ever bring this judgment of exile on his people? Yes, anyone got to guess what, what was the exile? Babylon. Yes, they were exiled to Babylon. We're going to talk a little bit about that because <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of history between what's going on in the Torah here and when that exile actually happens. So I'm going to do my best to give you some of the historical context, but we don't have the time to go through every verse that attaches to this. Um, and so this is to help us understand the text that's going to be in Deuteronomy 15, which will, once we get through this context of the exile, um, we'll have better understanding of that. Uh, so to understand the exile, we're going to go to Jeremiah. So go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 34. While you're turning there, I'm going to give a little background. So Jeremiah, the prophet, he is addressing the vassal king of Judah, whose name is Zedekiah. Uh, remember for last week uh, that the vassal king is the one that serves that greater king, right? Uh, in this case, that greater king is the king of Babylon. Now, Babylon has already sacked Jerusalem once uh, and had taken the previous king and thousands captive. And so the, the king of Babylon then put Zedekiah as this puppet king or, or vassal king over Judah, requiring tribute to be given to Babylon. And this vassal king, Zedekiah, chose to rebel against Babylon. And he also did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Now you can get more detail of this in 2 Chronicles 36 and 2 Kings 24, if you want to become more of a history buff on the Bible. So Jeremiah, uh, this time, during this time, he declares that judgment was coming because of the people's disobedience to Yahweh, just like what we read in Leviticus 26. Um, so let's go ahead and read Jeremiah 34, starting in verse 6. Then Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. When the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were only Uh, the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them 
that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials and all the people uh, who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set, his, set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. And they obeyed and set them free. And I wish we could just stop right there, but it's going to get worse. <clears throat> so continuing on. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves that they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female servants, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they had made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to the city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So notice that the people falsely repented. Again, they disobeyed the command to keep the sabbatical year. They didn't free their brother, but kept, them, kept him as a slave. They didn't forgive debts, and they didn't let the land rest. And now God has pronounced exile to Babylon. Now this, this is the result of sin. And this exile is to remind us of the detriment of disobedience. This disobedience that refused to walk in righteousness and justice. And it reminds us of the importance of covenant with our holy God. Now, this isn't the only exile that occurred in the Bible. See, it actually started in the Garden of Eden. 
you can remember there, Adam and Eve were in paradise with God, walking with him. And then they sinned against him. And they were forced to leave the garden. They were exiled from the garden. So both of these exiles paint the picture that really all of us are in exile because of sin. Sin has led us all into exile. And you can see it around us. We are living in a broken world. We're not in the place that is paradise like it once was. We are living in a place that is ruled by the kingdom of darkness, by the enemies of God. And because we are now in the land of God's enemies, we have to recognize that all of us are in this place because of our sin, because of the sins of our fathers and our sin. But now enters the good news. It's been heavy, but now we're going to make it a little bit more bearable. So Yahweh gave the Israelites opportunity to enter back into covenant with him, uh, which we're going to look back at Leviticus 26, verse 40 to 45. It says, but if they confess, remember this is right after the uh, um, consequences of disobedience that the Lord spoke. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul, soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. And the great thing is that we actually see this repentance come out um, about in the Israelites during the exile. And as it ended, they returned home and recommitted to keep covenant with Yahweh. We see this in Nehemiah 10, verse 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the seniors, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land, lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rule and his statutes. 
We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Here the people recommit to keep the commandments and specifically the sabbatical year. What I want us to realize in this is God's faithfulness and holiness. And we see this throughout the narrative of the Bible. So he, he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished, which all of us are guilty, and yet provides a way for his people to return and have restored covenant. So there is this tension here that forces us to recognize that God is gracious towards us. We deserve to remain in exile forever. But he's also provided a way for us to return to him in the midst of this exile. So for the Jews, after returning to the Lord their God, they submitted themselves to his rule and commands. So we saw this in Nehemiah, where they again instituted the Sabbath in the sabbatical year. And so now that we we have this context of the graveness to have obedience to God that we get from the example of the Jews. Now we can start to spend time in our text today and try and glean what God's covenant community actually looks like. That brings me to my second point, the characteristics of God's covenant community. So to see these characteristics, turn back to Deuteronomy 15. I'm going to read part of that, verses 1 through 6. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. The Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So the first characteristic we see from the sabbatical year is a release of debt. Now, to better understand what debt is being released, we need to go back to where this law originally was given. And we see that in Exodus 23, verses 10 through 11. Pull up the slide for that. So it says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year... You shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. That was Exodus 23, 10 through 11. So now as you compare these two verses, you might think they're two completely different laws, like they have nothing to do with each other. But 
Remember that Deuteronomy is giving further clarification on the law. Uh, and there is a link in the Hebrew that we're going to look at. See, in Exodus, we see the word uh, rest in English there. But in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, we see the word release. Now, the Hebrew is actually using the same word for both rest and release there, uh, which is called shemat. And this is best translated to release. So in Exodus, it would be better to say in the seventh year, they are to release the land from being worked. And so this helps us link the two verses. That can also give us insight as to what Deuteronomy is clarifying. See, what, what has always had a price tag, uh, a price tag on it for humanity? Like many of you are shopping for it right now. Houses, land, right? Land has always had a price tag. And so <clears throat> for the Israelite who owned land and needed uh, a loan, they would have had to pledge, uh, they would have had to pledge their lands for that loan. And so in order to pay it off, they would harvest their lands and either pay with part of the harvest or sell off their harvest and take, pay the money to pay off that loan. Uh, and so, I mean, like, just play it out. Like, say you have a couple years of bad harvest. Well, you're starting to default on your loan, and that's not going to be good. Like, the next step is you're going to have to pledge yourself as a servant, a slave, in order to pay off the rest of that, that loan. So it can quickly spiral if things don't go, go your way. And so the sabbatical year of release alleviated this from happening. See, it brought balance by bringing in a humanitarian element into the economics of the Israelites. And it reminded that the focus for the Israelites was not to become rich and powerful, but to love each other because of their covenant with Yahweh. Now, there, there are some unanswered questions as how this worked logistically. I mean, for example, like, was no farming to take place the for the entire nation during the same year? Or did they stagger it for different regions on different years? I don't know. It doesn't really answer that. Uh, all we know is that they're commanded to have the land rest for the seventh year. Now, Regardless, this gave a character of justice among the people of Israel. I mean, could you imagine if this is how the U.S. operated in their loans? Like every seventh year, debt-free, all student loans, gone. All housing loans, gone. Like, it would be kind of crazy. I don't know how we would function, but... Uh, yeah, the idealism of this is that we might actually care more about our neighbor and our stewardship more than the, how we can get wealthier and more powerful than our neighbor. You see the justice that's happening there? This is very distinct from what other nations were doing at that time. And now you might wonder, why is the foreigner excluded from this? That's another part of this. Um, well, most likely foreigners weren't uh, given stake in any of the land. That's, that's one part. Uh, 
And so if there was any loans, it would be different, but most likely they weren't even supposed to have loans with foreigners. Um, now, it doesn't mean that a foreigner couldn't become part of the covenant people of God. That's the other part of this, is that if a foreigner wanted to, they could become part of the covenant people. Uh, we saw that, we see that with uh, the book of Ruth. Ruth was one that was a foreigner, and she became part of the God's covenant people, even a uh, ancestor of Jesus. So another interesting part of this is that uh, Deuteronomy directly links this release, not just between Israelites, but it, they link it to the Lord. And it says that in verse 2, that this is the Lord's release that has been proclaimed. And this is to help us understand that God is shaping his people to reflect himself. He has, by grace, created a people that are his. And we, uh, as his people, are to obey him as a response to his gracious love. And then he continues to bless his people as they dwell with him. So this is the ideal that we see throughout Scripture. But there's a little reality check in the next verses here. So let's read verse, verses 7 through 12. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, if any, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or short, shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So the first six verses gave us the ideal. Like this is, if, if everybody does this, this is going to be great. But we know the heart of man. And Moses uh, is writing to check that. And so the reality is that we're, we're selfish, especially with our wealth. And humanity in general has always lived this way. We resist generosity because we find value in our success and we define success in our wealth. And with this mentality, we create a system in which the poor exist. So notice back in, in verse 4, it says that though there will be no poor among you. That's the ideal. But in verse 11, it says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. See, Moses sees this already taking place in the Israelites. And he's 
Otherwise, there wouldn't be no need for him to have to address it if they were actually following these commands. So there is a hardness of heart toward the way of Yahweh, even among his people. And, this, and if this hardness goes from thought to action, we're going to find ourselves in the place of sin. And again, which leads to God's judgment, which is exile, as we learned earlier. So this command is calling to battle that hardness of heart to remember the heart of God toward his people and to submit to his benevolent rule. And the submitted response is found here in the release of debt for the people of Israel. Well, next section goes from this financial debt to this slave system. So we see this in verses 12 through 18. Let's read, your brother... A Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you. He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. And it shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So I'm just going to make a caveat statement that this isn't the Bible trying to condone slavery, um, but it's dealing with the reality of the current day socioeconomics. So part of the justice this command brings is that it does give rights to those who typically have none because they don't own land and they don't have material wealth. And this is a way for them to survive by having a master that will give them provision and work. And it applies not just to males, but also to females. So at the time, this is probably, again, way ahead of anything other nations were doing. So also, most likely, these, those that were in the socioeconomic class, that were the slave class, were probably non-ethic Israelites. Um, just making a guess there, so don't quote me on that. Um, so there were, there were definitely expectations to care for the servants. Um, and realizing that for the master, it was definitely uh, a lesser cost to have this, this servant than to hire out an employee. And so then after the, the six years, we saw that uh, the servant is then released, and the master, regardless, was to give them a generous farewell package, like a severance package today. You know, it was to be generous, um, for them to be able to go, go their way and either go find another master or whatever else they're going to go do. And so this was to be 
a reminder of what God had done for the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. So they were not to be oppressive, but to give opportunity for those who were poor. And so if the, if, uh, if the servant desired to stay, they could become a slave to their master until the end of their life. And notice that this is the slave's choice, not the master's. So I want to ask, do you see the beauty in what the Lord's trying to set up for Israel to do in all this? Like this, this release of debt, the release of the land, the release of this, these slaves. And it shows us that God's heart is compassionate and wise. It shows us that he desires for us to have the same compassion for each other, to value each other more than our wealth. Let me say that again, to value each other more than our wealth. And the thing is, it requires sacrifice on our part, on the Israelites' part, which is probably why this last section is included as a reminder to sacrifice. Let's read verse 19 through 23. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it with your, within your towns. The unclean and clean alike may eat it, as though it were a gazelle or deer. Only you shall not eat, it in, not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Now remember, the, the, this points to the sacrificial system for the Israelites to have atonement for their sin. And next week, we're going to be going further into that topic of Passover and what all that means. But what we're going to pull from this text is that it does have similar language as to the release of debt and the release of the slaves. See, the firstborn of your flock no longer is to be sheared, which would be a financial hit to its owner because they couldn't sell the wool. And the firstborn of your herd was almost like losing the slave because uh, it probably would have been the, the animal you would use for plowing your fields. So, there is a, a big difference in the section in that the firstborn animal is then sacrificed and eaten um, by the owner's household to ded dedicate it to the Lord. So I'm not sure what the firstborn animal would think about that, uh, but the text doesn't tell us. So uh, again, this attacks the selfish heart that wants to build up wealth. I mean, if you were a landowner and you had cattle and sheep, you wouldn't want to get rid of it. You want to use it for its purpose. You're losing wealth by having to sacrifice it. And it's, so this is a reminder that Yahweh is the one who is to be worshipped. And it's a reminder to the Israelites of God's character and that this God desires to bring a restorative justice among his people to build a people who walk in righteousness. Now, the question is, how does this apply to all of us? 
Are we to follow this exact law? Not exactly. Not this exact law, but something similar. Because it's not, we're not trying to sacrifice uh, for atonement, so we have a different sacrifice as through Christ. And he is calling us as a people to live in righteousness and justice in a different way. And that's going to be my third point. The fulfillment of righteousness and justice is found in Christ. The fulfillment of righteousness and justice is found in Christ. So we can relate to this chapter in Deuteronomy because of Christ. For Christ, who is God, humbled himself as a servant to sacrifice himself in our place. But for Christ, after being crucified, he defeated death and sin by his resurrection. And so for Christ, who now sits on the throne, he calls to himself a people who exist in exile and are enslaved to sin, but he now gives them freedom because of what he did on the cross in the resurrection. And in that freedom, this people who choose uh, to now serve this generous Lord, who is Christ. And this people I speak of is the church. It's us. And like the Israelites who were freed from slavery in Egypt and were to follow these commands to reflect God's character, we too have been freed from sin and death and given new life. In response to this new life, we are faced with costs, just like the Israelites, Israelites were with the sabbatical year. Now, Jesus tells us what this cost is, this cost of being his disciple. We find that in Matthew 16, verse 24 to 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So here in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, we see that selfish gain will again only bring exile. So even if that life gained the whole world and had all the power over humanity, it would not please Christ. It would not give them eternal life. That's because that life would be against Christ, because it was always trying to be about rising above God and to be self-worshipped. And we, see, we live in a world where we see this happen every day. Individuals who vie for power and wealth and do so at the expense of others. It's unjust. And we who are God's people once desired the same thing and probably are still tempted by it. However, we need to realize that this system is built on sin. And it has existed from the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned against God in order to become like God. 
and for this they were exiled. And the Israelites, breaking the sabbatical year and, uh, and other sins that they committed, the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon. And this is a reality that all of humanity is in ex- exile in regards to being in God's kingdom. Now Christ came to open our eyes to this reality, to turn our hearts back to the true living God. So we are still living in this exile, living in this broken world. Yet, as God's people, we now have a choice set before us each day. Give glory to our Lord and Savior or give in to the rebellion of humanity. In Christ, we are being sanctified to image him in this world. And part of this sanctification is taking on Christ's character to live righteously and bring justice. Tzedakah and Mishpat. You guys heard Hans say that. Remember, righteousness is right relationship between us, God, each other, and creation. And justice is taking action to bring that righteousness. And without Christ reaching into the darkness, righteousness and justice would truly never come to this world. But praise God that he did. And one day we will see the fullness of this when Christ returns as the conquering king, when he restores order, brings righteous judgment, brings his people out of this exile from the kingdom of darkness into where we will dwell in the kingdom of God. This is the hope we have in Christ. So now, reality is we live in this world. We wait, but we are not to wait stagnantly. We are called to do good works, as Ephesians 2.10 tells us. And we do this from the free gift of grace that Christ bestowed upon his people. So it's not for us to boast in, but it's because we boast in his grace that he's shown us that we then live in obedience to him to give glory to our Lord and Savior. It's from this love that we are empowered to walk in righteousness. And though we will stumble, we will. The Bible says the righteous will get back up. As because we as a church are called to love each other. When we see one of us stumble, my prayer is that we will come alongside that brother or sister to help them, remind them of who they are in Christ, get back up and keep living towards righteousness and bringing justice. We must be a people who plead the blood of Christ as our all-sufficient sacrifice. We are no longer to offer the firstborn of our herd because Christ fulfills that need for atonement. When we find ourselves in sin, we plead the blood of Christ and repent, forsaking that sin that led our heart away from Christ. 
because we are a new creation in him. We have been freed. And we must make the same choice as that uh, slave when he was freed in the sabbatical year, when he was given release. So we have to ask, do we give our eternal life and servant to our benevolent master, Christ? That is a question I want all of us to ponder and discuss this week. Do we give our eternal life and service to our benevolent master, Christ? Are you committed to Christ as he has shown his faithfulness and commitment toward you, his people? And as the Israelites were told to release their debt, we know the debt of our sin has been released by Christ. So are we living in a way that puts others above ourselves as Christ exampled? We are called to live in this ideal of generosity. And last week you heard how giving our tithe and offering gives honor and glory to our king. And that is definitely a generous act, but it goes beyond just money. It's also directing our generosity to benefit the relationships of, around us. So your time, talents, and treasure, all can be given generously to build other people up. Build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we have opportunity here at Mission. I mean, there's things like volunteering for kids, security, hospitality, meals. And I hope we as a church build more avenues for us to be generous. Because it's not just about volunteering for one thing. It's a life of service for Christ. So we also, as a church, we offer benevolence to our members that are in need. We also give global, globally to missions such as Burkina Faso and Indonesia um, and Haiti, and uh, I'm sure we'll probably have other avenues that will grow from there. And we give to these because we have built relationships with the individuals that they're in those places building for the kingdom of Christ. I'm so grateful that many of you have specifically partnered with us in supporting those ministries. That's one of those, well done. That's great. That shows our generosity in this world. That's not just locally in Salem, but it's also globally to the greater church. Now, we're also called to the ideal of justice. And there is a lot of brokenness in this world. We're called to be a people who bring the gospel, not just in words, but to show the gospel in action that reflects the heart of God. To remember that, that, remember that the gospel brought those who were enemies of God into his family. We were all adopted as sons and daughters. And we as a church can show this gospel justice by supporting things like DHS kids and adopting 
a child, uh, supporting international justice mission to end slavery. Um, like those are, James 1, 27 speaks to that, where visiting the orphans and widows uh, and keeping oneself unstained from the world as pure, is pure and undefiled religion. Those are good things that reflect God's character. I mean, this justice can also be shown in just walking with someone you know during a tragic time in their life. Seeing that there is pain that they are wrestling with, and you can help them be led back to Christ, who can truly restore them in righteousness. I mean, you can also, today, if you see someone that you don't know, go welcome them, go talk to them, go get to know them. There's part of that injustice that we all want to be known, but we aren't known. We're called to love each other, be known. That is a work of justice that is needed in the world. Those are just a few examples. So my challenge for us this week, I want you to look at the world around you. I want you to see what's unjust. And if you see an opportunity that can work toward justice that glorifies Christ, pursue it. Don't know where it's going to go, but pursue it to give glory to Christ. This isn't an individual battle. This is one that we have to rely on each other. We're called to do this as a church, not as individuals. So we're called to this ideal of generosity and justice as Christ's people. So I want us to remember that Christ first brought this restorative justice to us on the cross and resurrection. And so I want you to be empowered to walk as Christ did, to love each other, to practice righteousness, to bring justice, and to give all glory to Christ. Let's pray.